Father, we do thank you for this time. Um, we thank you for the joy of being together and um, learning of you, sitting at your feet, hearing your word, being um, slowly transformed day by day, grace by grace, because of the work of your Spirit in us through the power of your word. We pray that you would do that again this morning, that you would make us open and receptive to challenging things um, in our lives, um, that your word holds up a mirror and lets us see us for who we really are in light of who you are. We were created to reflect your nature and who you are, and we fail so often. So we pray for wisdom and power and discernment to put down ourselves and lift up Christ and the way we live and we talk and we move and how we relate to one another, how we relate to those who are unbelievers, how to lay down our lives for them as well. God, I pray that we, that we are softened this morning, um, that we are challenged to get outside of our Christian bubbles and to look upon a world that is, that's dying and um, is residing under the, the judgment of a holy God. May we be zealous for the gospel of salvation from the wrath to come, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. amen. This is a tough passage today, I'm not going to lie. Um, that's a tough one. We've been, we've been walking through, um, we've been walking through the, the, the cash cow episode, where Israel, uh, while Moses is on the mountain for 40 days, they decide to make a, a golden calf, uh, forsake their covenant to God right off the bat, shatter it, ruin it, as the language says earlier in the chapter. <clears throat> We're looking at Exodus 32, verses 25 through 35. We're going to finish the chapter today. Uh, and we saw, uh, we've been seeing that although Aaron was to blame for this because he was in leadership, he was responsible for, for their actions. He didn't try to keep them from doing it. In fact, he facilitated this idolatry. Even though he was the one in charge the people still owned much of the responsibility for what happened. They did it willingly. They wanted to do it. And they, breached the, they breached the covenant with God right there at the base of the mountain. And yet something else seems to be continuing to go on in this next section. Um, look, at, look, at, uh, look at that. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies... Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps... I can make atonement for your sin. 
So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. What do you do with this? What do you do with this? The people have broken loose, it says. Uh, If you've got another translation other than the ESV, what does it say there? I read the Holman. It says out of control. Out of control. That's that's an NASB, Holman kind of. Anybody have an NIV? Does anybody dare to have an NIV? No, I'm kidding. Do you have an NIV? You left yours at home, Tammy? You know better. In the NIV, it says they were running wild, out of control, broke loose. The Hebrew here, the, the, the language is, um, is without restraint. And it's, a, it, it's, a, it's kind of a play on words, the way, that, the way it works. Uh, it, it sounds like the word that they use for Pharaoh. Hardened, out of control, rebellion against God. That's the idea here. Uh, go ahead, Chris. What? Uh, okay, so I, I haven't been here for the beginning part of the study. It, did God lead them to this point with the pillar of fire and mm-hmm. the cloud? These miraculous, supernatural. Things? Yep. Yep. Cloud uh, by day, so now fire by at night. The bottom, and is any so they probably haven't seen anything supernatural in the last several days. Uh, well, in about forty days, maybe. Is that? It's just interesting that they have broke, they have lost control, no discipline. What led to that? But yet they've been led by the supernatural thing. Yeah. It's just interesting. We haven't gotten our entertainment value lately, so we're gonna we're gonna break loose. What led to that? What what does the scripture say? Because of whom? Because of Aaron. Do you find that odd that all this is kind of sort of laid at his feet? Not all of it. I mean, the people obviously are responsible for what they did, but they, it keeps coming back to you. Federal head. The federal headship, exactly. He's a representative of the people. He's a leader of the people. What he does is imputed to the rest of them. He's labeled as the high priest. He's tagged with that responsibility of being the high priest. What he does affects everybody. And yet, they're also responsible for what they did. And we see that in the way the rest of the chapter unfolds. Um, how have they been punished already? They had to drink the gold. Right. Remember, he ground up the idol, he put it in a brook, which is a small body of water, and they drank this undiluted gold dust stuff, <coughs> which is, we discussed last time, is, is like a trial by ordeal, uh, where they drank down the, the stuff, and if they're guilty, then God reveals that and how what happens to them next. If they're not, then they go on their way and it's never mentioned again. We talk about Numbers 5, the idea of a, a guy accusing his wife of adultery and that was how it was dealt with. And if nothing ever happened to her, then the guy was to let it go and never mention it again. Here we have the result of a trial by ordeal. At the end of it, we see, uh, the ESV says a plague. Um, 
the other uh, translations would say the Lord struck them or, or visited upon them or whatever. It doesn't really identify what it is. Um, restraint sounds like Pharaoh. Um, here we see this language again uh, linking idolatry and adultery. The same language is used in that Numbers 5 passage I was telling you about. There's a, there's a linkage here. The unfaithfulness in idolatry is likened to the unfaithfulness in adultery. That's the language that God uses to describe this. But it says they had broken out. They had broken loose. Uh, they had, were running wild. They were out of control. What does that mean? Is something still going on? Mm-hmm. It was a reference to like a stubborn cow. Right. Is this also kind of a reference to them acting like a herd of wild cattle? That's exactly what it is. Uh, the language that's being used, again, is to describe them in terms of what they worship. They become we become what they worship. We become what we worship. And the language, again, is, is pointing to just an uncontrolled herd. Um, I'm wondering if there is um, if there's a continued pushback on Moses even here that there is this who are you we had fun we had a good time Aaron let us do this he said it was of God he did a feast to Yahweh even as we were worshiping this golden this cash cow who are you to tell us that this is inappropriate um, doesn't it depend on what most of us agree is right? Right? Yes? After the trial by ordeal, that they're still not repentant and they're still... Right. Well, the trial by ordeal, they've taken the stuff and, 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 the, and the punishment or non-punishment hasn't happened yet until here at the end. It's kind of the, it's the waiting period of that. And I get the sense here that they're, they're just still, there's still this rebellious thing going on. It's a continuing attitude issue. Um, they liked their party and their idol once they had gotten a taste of it since Aaron had failed to restrain them. And, and, I, and I, I don't know, the language seems, seems to say to me that it's a continuing attitude deal. It says this, to the derision of their enemies. What does that mean? How can you have derision of the enemy when it's like just happened? They didn't email it out. How would the enemies even know about this? Ah. What does that mean? What do you think? And why is that a big deal? What does derision mean? Derision is to the contempt of their enemies, to, the, to <coughs> able to be mocked by their enemies because of this kind of thing going on. It's not the same. Was it Egypt? <laughs> enemies, enemy. I guess it could be Egypt. Some of it, Egypt. That was part of the concern with Moses whenever he was up on the mountain when he said, don't, you know, don't break out against these people. What will Egypt say? Right? Be some of it. Yeah, what is this holy God you worship? That's what that means. Yeah. Okay. Break loose when you're trying to get out of the camp. They're without restraint is the, is the language. So they're acting in a way that is not consistent with the covenant. They're not reflecting. They're not, certainly not obeying the Ten Commandments. They've already breached the first two. There's a, there's a sense here. This is an editorial comment. Because I don't think there's any indication here that it would have even gotten out beyond the camp at this point. 
But the idea is, what were they called to do as a people? What was the point of it? I will be your God, you will be my people. You'll be a light among the Gentiles. They will know that I am the Lord. These are all, this is all the language of the purpose of God choosing Israel. The derision of their enemies, oh, that's your God. Well, it's not any different than ours. It even looks the same. It's got the same bovine face. You know. The derision of the enemies is, your God's not that great. Your God's not even different. You guys act just like we do. Why should we serve Him? Why should we fear Him? The word derision here can also mean whisper. The Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, was translated, translated this word as the enemies took a secret joy in what they had done. Um, that's Old Testament. Does that apply to us? Christian has a doubt about it. Yeah, they don't, they, they, they're sad about it. Um, what does Paul say about that? Do we see some language in the writings of Paul about how we act and the reputation to those who are, out, he calls them outsiders? Um, Paul says that he becomes all things to all men that he might save some. That um, li live a holy life so that no one has an opportunity to reproach the gospel. That's the, that's the language of the New Testament. And you see that in a stark example here. This may have not have gotten out, but it will. And it'll be a, a source of, it'll be an obstacle to what they're supposed to do. The reputation of the church to outsiders is either a help or a hindrance to the gospel. The authenticity of our lives reflects just on us individually, but on all of us corporately. My sin affects you. Your sin affects me. It affects the body as a whole. How, um, how authentic is the gospel when our lives don't reflect it? That's, that's what's at issue here. And this is a commentary added to the historical narrative on the call of God to his people to not add any obstacles to others knowing that he is a Lord. What is Moses calling for when he stands in the main gate? You know the main gate often is, the, is referenced as the center of town, the, the place where all the economics happen. The policies are discussed and all the hubbub of the town. So he's in the middle of the place and he's calling to them for what reason? What is, he, what is he asking? What is he saying? Choose. Choose. To, to, to do what? Who will serve the Lord come to me? Implied, those who will not, stay over there. Don't come to me. And then what does he tell them to do? I heard kill them. Kill brothers and their neighbor and their companion? Yikes. Sounds very Islamic. And we're afraid of church discipline. And we're afraid of church discipline. <laughs> very good. What is going on here? 
Mount Carmel when um, <coughs> Elijah says, you know, how long were you waiting between the two opinions? And, I mean, we've just had this showdown between God and an idol, and it's about to have the same outcome. Judgment comes on the prophets of Baal there with Elijah on Mount Carmel. Mm-hmm. Judgment comes here. Um, and, as we'll see if we ever get to Joshua, judgment sometimes comes in the form of conquest and slaughter. God uses men to enact judgment. He does it with Israel on Canaan. He does it with Babylon on Israel when Israel falls. It's not that one nation is better than the other, but all is used to, for God to exact His judgment where He will, how He will. And we see two forms of judgment here. We see this using the Levites. What's your zeal? Are you obedient? This is what it takes. Even those who are close to you are not worth the value and glory of God and who He is. And so here's a sword on your thigh. Go and, and those who are causing rebellion, those who are not wanting to follow God, those who are covenant breakers and not repentant of it, this is what it costs. And, and from this, the Levites are ordained to uphold the holy things in the temple. This is where they're going. This is what, this is what they're set apart to do. Um, and this zealous act is a rite of consecration for them. We're not... Question. Yeah, go ahead. Do you think that this was more of a purging of uh, rebels or more of a testing of their loyalty? Uh, I think both. I think both. I think, I think there was some... Uh, I think it was ongoing rumblings of rebellion... Uh, whispering against, we don't need this, we can do this ourselves, that, that kind of thing. And you're about to ordain, you've just been given the law, ordaining the Levites to do certain services and, and guard and, and, and keep stuff in the tabernacle. This is part of it. This is a, what does the law say? If you, if you, um, if you make an, a carved image, if you worship another god other than Yahweh, they're to be put to death. And so this is part of the judgment on them under the covenant. Kevin, sorry, this might be jumping ahead, but why is Aaron permitted to live if you let all of that happen? Hmm. That's a good question. And then also to continue to serve as a priest. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it comes down to uh, intercessory work by Moses. Um, the 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 prayer of Moses for Aaron, the prayer uh, the the prayer of Moses for the people. Here we see 3,000 fall and not everybody. Remember, God was going to wipe out everybody for this because they all in some way participated. Better than a few who are continuing in it than everybody all at once is kind of the idea here. But that's a good question. It's mercy. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's mercy. Um, From one end to the other, they are to kill those who participated in this idolatry. Women and children too? What does it say? The idea is the males here, the leaders of their houses, the, again, the representative of the families who are in rebellion. We're not really told uh, how, this, how this happened. We just know that they obeyed God. Um, one, yeah, it, again, it's, it's a judgment thing. 
This is a judgment exercised by the Levites on the camp. It's not pretty. Does it bother you? It bothers me. But, but does it bother me because I think of myself with a thorn, with a thorn, a sword on my thigh? <laughs> We're just going to combine it. It's just thorn. My thorn on my, 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 yeah, whatever. So do, do I think of being put in that position, what I would do? Do you? It's almost like it, and this might be wrong, but it's such a shocking thing. It's like an attention getter. Yeah, they're breaking loose. This is a very powerful electric fence suddenly erected around this unruly herd. Uh, what went on here? Oh, this is serious. We need to stop this. Um, that's Old Testament. Right? Unless you hate father, mother, sister, brother, you cannot, even your own lives, you cannot be my disciple. Um, zeal for your house has consumed me. There is a call in all of Scripture for a clear distinction between love and sympathy with the world system and love and dedication to Christ. And I say Christ because everything points to Him. There's a call to love Him with a zeal that by comparison looks like hate. You think guys on the beach in Libya who continue to confess Christ, knowing that if they capitulated to Islam, they would not be slaughtered. They leave behind wives, children, mothers, fathers. It would have been a simple thing. Do you hate mother, father, sister, brother, and love Christ? Do you hate your own life and love Christ? That's the dedication, the zeal that he's talking about here, and it's displayed here with the Levites. Um, we cannot love God and play with the world. The two are incompatible. Here, God through Moses makes a clear statement that syncretism will not be tolerated. We can't, we can't baptize our sin in Christian language and, and, and think that that's a good thing and move along. It's, we're just Americans. America. That's, that's what we do in the West. We can't do that. Anything less than total devotion to Christ is to take up arms against him as a rebel. Next day, he says, verse 30, the next day after the slaughter, Moses confronts the people again with the gravity of the situation. They have sinned a great sin. Who is he talking to? Individuals? The whole people? Right. Some participated, some participated by not. Right. Not right. The you here is, is plural personal. He's talking to the whole group, the whole corporate nation. Um, it, this is a covenant idea. All of Israel, whether a particular person participated in it or not, we're all guilty because of what has gone on. They're all to blame for the golden calf. Oh, man. The golden calf. Incident, the clap. Okay. 
<laughs> the ordaining of the Levites showed them what should have been the proper response to the idolatry in the camp when it happened. They should have put it down quickly. Somebody should have grabbed a sword and said, we're not doing this. But they didn't do it. So Moses did it through the Levites when he got back. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking about cancer. Like, If somebody has a cancerous tumor, I know we've heard this analogy a thousand times, but if, if let's say I have a cancerous tumor that's growing inside me, that cancer is still me. It still has my genes. It's still part of me. It's my DNA. It just didn't die when it's supposed to, and it's growing out of control and not doing what it's supposed to and taking over and pushing out the good in me for the sake of itself. Mm. And so we give surgeons permission to scalpel us and take that out. Yeah. And that is, in essence, what's going on here. Better that it's, a part be cut out than the entire camp die. It's just hard because we as believers ourselves, mm. and we know we've got a little bit of cancer in each one of us, and we're worried. We say, oh, that's not okay because we're worried that we're going to be next. Sure. Sure. But how does Moses talk to them here? He says, you've sinned a great sin, but what? What does he say? Let me go talk to God, and I'll try to make atonement for you. That's a marked contrast of before. Well, I guess, I mean, he was, he was angry before, but... You mean with the, with the Levites? Well, with Moses and just the people. Yeah. Oh, oh because, because yeah, of, of breaking the tablets and yeah, all that? The, the attitude of, of willingness to, to intercede. What was his initial response when God told him on the mountain, they've done this thing? Wasn't he really angry? Well, he, he did something. He, pleaded. he immediately pleaded for them. Right. It's interesting, he comes down and he sees what they're doing mm -hmm. and thinks people are really going to talk. Yeah. Well, not only that, I mean, that I, was I, part I, of it, but, I, it was, I, but really it was a it was zealousness for the, yeah, it was a zealousness for the nature of God and them not yeah. doing what they're supposed to do. Um, he talks to them very, I, I think he's being gracious here. He's being merciful here. I'm going to go see if I can make atonement for you. We've lost 3,000 already at God's instruction. Let me go make atonement for you. The language indicates a strong desire of Moses to intercede for them. To what extent is he willing to intercede? How does that conversation go? What does he say? Do they even believe that God exists anymore? I mean, why, why did they make the golden calf? Well, God exists the way we want him to exist. We want, we want to be able to see something. I think there was still, you know, smoke and fire and lightning and all that stuff going yeah. on the mountain while Moses was up there. At least there was a cloud. They thought he was dead too. And they thought Moses was dead. He's not coming back. We right. We got to do something. He's shamed us. He's left, or he's dead. One of the two. My thought was, you know, Moses was like, I'm going to go make atonement, and I was thinking the people might think, to who? Like, yeah. We don't believe in this thing up there. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that has been, and it's certainly here in a second going to be shown not to be, okay. not to be a viable thought anymore, if that is there. He says something here. Look at the language. He says, but now, he says, they've sinned, they, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He goes to God, he doesn't say, well, if you just get to know him better. You know, he doesn't do any of that. He says, they've sinned a great sin. There's a, there's a complete owning of this. 
on, on Moses' behalf. There's no sugarcoat in this. This is awful. They've breached your covenant. Uh, they've made gods of gold. We, we identify what it is. This is a confession by Moses on the part of the people. But now if you will forgive their sin, and then he stops. It's like he can't complete the sentence. But now if you'll forgive their sin, oh, that's just too much to ask. But what does he do in the place? What does he say next? If not, what? Use me as a substitute. Substitute me. Blot my name out of the book. Forgive them. That's a mediator. That's an intercessor. That's someone willing to trade their life for another. And yet he wasn't He couldn't do it. He was willing, but he, he can't do it. Right. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? As much as he's been maligned, as much as he's been vilified, as much as he's been disobeyed, Moses says, take me, not them. If, if you must take someone, take me. Blot me out. This is the guy who was told by God, I'm going to wipe them out and make you the new patriarch. No, take me instead of them. He's very pastoral in how he views them. Um, he doesn't leave them in their sin. He goes to make atonement to the point, to the extent that he's willing to, to plea with God to take his life for, for their forgiveness. Uh, just a side note, what is this book? Blot them out of the book. Where does he get that idea? Where does that come from? Heavenly books. Let's talk about accountant books. Uh, there, there, is, uh, there are three types, really, that are listed in Scripture. There's, there's this book of remembrance in Malachi 3. There's the book of blessings and cursings in Zechariah 5. And then there's a book of life, which is basically a census. Who are gods, who are not? Who, are, who belong to Him? And we see this all over. Uh, ultimately, we see it in Revelation, um, but it's also mentioned in Psalm 69 and other places. What does God say in response to, to Moses' plea, take my life, blot me out of the book, forgive your people? What does he say? My angel shall go before you. My, I'm, lead them. My presence, the angel of my presence, is going to, we talked about that before as being kind of the pre-incarnate Christ idea. Jesus in the wilderness kind of thing. He's going to go before you, but I'm not taking your life. What does he say? Those who rebel, disobey, have sinned against me, I'll visit their sin on them. You can't take their sin. Each man remains responsible for his own actions here. And we see that happen ultimately, right? Without a mediator, without someone to step in, they bear the weight of their own sin. They bear the weight of their own rebellion against God for not reflecting who He is. And how does, what's the result of that? What happens? A ESV says a plague. But if of, all the people were responsible, obviously He didn't wipe out all the people in the plague. 
That's true. We see here judgment tempered with mercy. Which seems to, I, I don't know, it seems to imply to me that like the Le, the, there were the Levites mm-hmm. who were somewhat repentant because they, right. they changed. Right. And that there were others who... Who were who repentant were as well. And then there were others who were staying hardened in their, in their, in their position. That, that they weren't going to follow I mean, Moses. They weren't going to... Yeah, there's... That the whole camp Right. So, so it was, but they killed the guilty group. Well, I think what you see here is a is a is a statement toward the um, the not all sin is equal. There are levels of punishment. Right. Jesus talks about levels of reward in heaven. There are also levels of punishment uh, that God doles out based upon. Uh, his own judgment on things. And I think here you see some of that. They're, they all had to drink it. Some were killed directly with a sword. Some are struck. Um, the, the NASB says, that he, he uses that awesome word, smote. I just love that word. He smote them. It doesn't, now, it doesn't say what was done, but they were, sm- they were smitten? Smoted? No. <laughs> they were smoted? I don't know. The plague could have killed more than just the men. That's true. But we don't know. We don't know what happened there. We know that ultimately the punishment for the trial of ordeal was doled out in this smiting. Yes? I was just wondering, is it, this is just a question similar to how, so that, that one group that was killed, how, like an Adam, now all have sinned and mm-hmm. all are prone to sin um, and have that curse, but he was cast out and now we're all doomed to sin, but we've been given Christ. Yeah. Because it was the one, not all of them died. Right, not all of them died. But because of the one group, they were all... Well, they ultimately will die, won't they? Right. This generation falls in the wilderness, but but at this point, immediate judgment is given to some. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, judgment is given to to all, and they all die. They don't see the promised land. Um, Two types of judgment here. There's There's the slaughter through the Levites, and then there's the smiting. We don't know what it is. Does God call us to show the kind of zeal for Him that we see the Levites exercise here? Are we to be used as instruments of judgment like the Levites are here? How does the New Testament talk of this same idea? Zeal for your house has consumed me. Should we be sharpening swords, packing bullets? It's, everything's in relation to Christ in the New Testament. Christ is okay. revealed. Christ is the image of God. He is God, but to us, the image, the bearer. And it's not our job to take up the sword. Uh, it's God's job. It says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Our job is to, is to speak truth, is to speak the gospel, and let God deal with it. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, Romans twelve eleven. Uh, do you recall in, in Revelation 19 where it talks about Jesus having the name Lord of Lords and King of Kings, King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thigh and on his robe? What are the, for those who have gone with us through Genesis, do, do you remember what 
use was made of the thigh in the Old Testament. Here we see it's used to strap a sword on for a warrior. What other use? Covenant. Covenant. Put your hand under my thigh and swear to me, Abraham says to Eliezer, the the servant, to go find a, a wife for Isaac. Here you have a picture of Christ being the ultimate judge. In Him rests the authority to execute right judgment because of the oath God has given that He will... All things, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth, he says. So the picture is that Christ is the one that yields the sword. Thank God I don't have to. I'm, I'm zealous in another way. How? Well, that's because of the Holy Spirit. We had the Holy Spirit back then. They didn't. Okay. Individually. Okay. How, how then does, am I called? Because he says, unless you come to me... And, and, and hate your own father, mother, wife, and children, and brother and sisters, yes, even your own life. You cannot be my disciple. Zeal, how is that supposed to look? All right, I'll cut to the chase. This, this is the sword. This is the sword. Okay. This, this is our zeal. This is what we fight with. This is what we stand. This divides bone and marrow. It divides household. It shows us what we need. It, uh, it cuts down kings. So Scripture is our sword. Yes. And Peter says, always be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you, that having a good conscience, that then they, when they defame you, they'll be ashamed when they see your good conscience. Again, the opposite of derision by the outsiders is this shaming because look at their lives. The authenticity of the gospel expressed in their life. That's the difference. Uh, Psalm 69 says this, let, those, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord, God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have, become, that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I don't want to be a, a barrier to the gospel by my own stupidity by my own sin. If I'm going to be reproached, I'd rather have the same reproaches that are thrown at God thrown at me. Right? Who will avenge that? Who will be just in that situation? Well, it's God's justice there. If it's my own goofiness, I bear my own goofiness. And it becomes a reproach to the church because of my goofiness. I would rather reproach be, I don't want this God because He tells me what I have to do and He, he thinks that He owns me. I, I'd have that reproach. I mean, do you understand? The, the reproach that we're talking about here, the, the, the zeal here, should be a, such that we don't give a reason for the derision of outsiders so as to create unnecessary barriers to the gospel. All things to all people that some may come to Christ. Some may be, be saved. Yes. There's no middle ground here. Right. Right, and there's no there's no in between. Nowhere in Scripture do you really find many gray areas. 
I mean, or any really, as far as are you are you in Christ or are you not? Um, and this whole, I don't want to give reproach to the gospel. This is not for pride's sake, but from a heart that looks like what we see here with Moses. I don't want to be an obstacle to somebody who's not saved because I want them to come to Christ. And Moses is at the point, take me, forgive them. Right? Does Paul say something similar to that? I'm thinking Romans in ninth chapter. Yeah. Um, he says, I would, I would, uh, I wish that, my, that I could be condemned for their sake. I mean, it's basically what he's saying. Blot me out for them. But Moses can't do it. Good. I was going to say, Paul says that after Christ, so he knows that Christ was the substitute, or Moses is like waiting for the substitute. So sure. But the heart is the same. And Paul does lay down his life in another way. In another way. It's just, it, Paul gives you more insight, I guess. Is what sure. But Moses can't, can't be their substitute. The Hebrews must bear the punishment for their own sins, even though here it's tempered with mercies. They weren't all wiped out. Uh, Paul can't do it. You and I can't do it. We simply can't bear the weight of another sin. We, have to, we bear our own apart from Christ. How thankful... We should be for the work of Christ. That it's finished. That in my place condemned he stood. What we're seeing here is Moses can't do it. He wants to badly. He can't do it. And so judgment is remaining on the people. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the substitute, the satisfaction for God's judgment for our sins. Christ is that. Um, there's a phrase think, in Colossians where he talks about, I complete what is lacking in what Christ has done in the work of Christ. And I heard Piper talk about this one time where he said that the complete what is lacking is not that there's anything deficient in the atonement of Christ. All that is lacking is its expression. Christ is in heaven and he's calling us to express it to lay down our lives, to tell people the gospel in, 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 and show uh, by, our, by our good hospitality, <laughs> by our, uh, uh, by our um, uh, sacrificial, uh, you know, spending time with people who are hurting, don't necessarily want to, by laying down our lives if necessary so that the gospel may go forward. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Zeal for the Christian is not to slaughter, but to offer ourselves up for slaughter. Our lives are counted as loss in comparison to the worth of Christ, not only in death, but in life. In the little things, do we lay down our lives so that we may be all things to all people that we may win some to Christ? Is that radical? Is that ordinary? Yes. There's been some yan-yan back and forth between some guys, some of, the, some of the celebrity guys about should we be radical or should we be ordinary? Yes. To be an ordinary Christian is to be radical because at heart, this is what, this is what the call is. The cost is to the, at the expense of my comfort, at the expense of my, um, my dreams, Sometimes, 
so that the gospel goes forth, so that I demonstrate that Christ is greater. Whether overtly huge risks or subtle risks, the heart is the same. That's the radical part, and it should be the heartbeat of the ordinary Christian. I'll end with this. Revelation. I've been in Revelation. I don't know why. I think there's a MacArthur commentary or something I've been reading. All right. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The reviler, the derider of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The blood of the Lamb, in my place condemned He stood. He lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died, and I trust Him and Him alone. By the blood of the Lamb they overcame. By the word of their testimony, Paul says it, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. By the word of their testimony, they love not their lives, all things to all people that I might win some. Even unto death, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How do you overcome? It doesn't mean you hop on a ship going to you know, Africa and Muslim-dominated countries just to show up and die. It may, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be just taking time to drink some coffee with somebody who's really messed up. Well, in Matthew 13, the parable of the tares, it's, it's asked, you know, should we go weed out the tares? Mm-hmm. Go kill them, get rid of them. And if you're told no, let them grow outside so that none of the weed is uprooted. Yeah. And it goes back to Jesus saying, love your enemies. That's a lot harder than killing somebody. Yeah, it's easy to... Uh, to, to be an, uh, an honor-based culture that wants to um, make ourselves look good through power. It's a lot harder to uh, be an obedient culture that <laughs> makes Christ look good through our reproach, being reproached. It's a different, it's a different mentality. It's, it's just it's upside down, really. Um, anything else? All right. Should I pray? I'll pray because we got you were raising your hand. I know you're scratching your head, but that's a raised hand. That means you have something. To... No, I'm kidding. You want to you want to pray? So glad that you're here. Thank you for thank you. For being... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it holds a mirror up to us and lets us see who we are in light of you. We all fail. We all stumble. We all willingly um, rebel at times. But I'm thankful that by your grace you don't leave us there. That because of the work of Christ you call us to yourself to restore, to... um, to renew our relationship with you. And that because of Christ, you can. You are free to forgive because He has borne our sin on the cross and He was raised so that we might live 
eternally with you in right fellowship, at peace with God and each other. May we make much of the gospel and how we live, how we speak, how we treat each other, how we treat outsiders. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for this church. I pray that you bless us as we go into the next service. Be with Philip as he preaches. Let it be life to those who hear it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.